Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 217 for April 28th, 2021. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana, Montana campus right here in University of Montana. Uh, <laughs> Wes and I were just joking pre-show that last week we had a date issue. This week, I don't know where I'm at. I'm in Missoula, Montana, but who is not in Missoula, Montana is, good evening, Dr. Wes Fryer. How are you tonight? Good evening, Jason. I'm joining from Oklahoma City, where we are having some spring weather, and we've been monitoring the radar, and thankfully, you're not going to hopefully have anything too severe, but you know, it is springtime, so it gets to be summer in Montana. We hear about fires. It gets to be spring in Oklahoma, and we hear about storms. But I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, where that means I teach fifth and sixth grade media literacy and am an instructional coach. And I actually got to talk to our upper division math department today about Scratch, and that was pretty pretty fun and cool. So I'm excited to be here as always. What are we What are we going to do besides perhaps uh, mention the weather in passing and uh, other you know, sorts of non-technical things. Well, we're going to take a look at news headlines that are across the techosphere and shoot them through the educational prism to see if we can't find some insights for our listeners and, and maybe ourselves regarding technology in education. And tonight... Uh, we have kind of our typical barrage of topics. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about privacy and our regular feature on the tech correction. There's a lot of Microsoft, Apple, and Google news. We have some connectivity information, a little bit of information, stuff about podcasting, our miscellaneous topic, and then we'll end tonight on Geeks of the Week. Dr. Fryer, where would you like to start tonight? Well, uh, boy, I really like those articles that you put in about this uh this tinker case test. So, so why don't we start there and, uh, I'll give a stab at, uh, at the first one. So I, I, uh, it's from NPR morning edition, t- um, today on uh, the 28th of April. And it's at, entitled that Supreme Court Mean Girls Meet First Amendment. And this is a flashback to my graduate work at Texas Tech because I didn't intend to be a school administrator, but I thought it'd be good to take a school law class. And one of the things I remember was the tinker case and that established that the free speech rights of students do not, you know, they do not give them up at the schoolhouse gate, the proverbial gate, so to speak. And so there's a, a case dating back a few years to a, a teenager who is a freshman posted some uh, expletives uh, and uh, the school took action against her. And the school is claiming that there is no limit to basically the reach of the school when it comes to censoring student speech and the article, or actually, I think maybe it was the second one with the ACLU, one of those indicates that uh, Justin Scalia doesn't believe that, that minors have free speech rights. So with conservative members on the board, on the, the Supreme Court, um, you know, who knows what is going to happen. But I don't think there's any way this can this can stand. I mean, to say that 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 schools could could censor that the gist of the article was that they needed more clarity because the key in censoring student speech uh if it's off campus and it is away from you know campus is if it causes a disruption a material disruption in school uh that's been the guideline for a long time and i think it's a good guideline and i would be shocked to see that changed by the supreme court 
case. But if the court had simply wanted to affirm the lower case, they could have they could have done that without hearing the case. So what are you what are what are your takes, Counselor Neifer? Well, I I mean, I this is hard for me because I actually I am a former newspaper advisor uh, for uh, uh, the high school I taught at before taking my current job. Um, I'm a big uh, advocate for student speech because I think that that's one of the ways you practice being an adult is by being a student first. Right. And and the government teacher and me, um, you know, uh, I, I don't think getting rid of this, the test makes any sense. But this notion of you know, in and out of school is a little problematic for me because it feels like that um, I I just don't know if school was really meant to extend in the outside world in that way. And, you know, uh, uh, define disruptive, uh, you know, uh, disruptive to school, right? Like that, that's the part that I, I find very troubling here in part because, to be honest, I'm not entirely certain that the now college freshman that's at the center of this case, I think you know, saying F off to a, a public institution is is probably a protected piece of speech. And what student has not uttered an expletive, at least under their breath, at the school at some point? And I realize it's a different phenomenon to post that to Snapchat and the 250 individuals that saw uh, or, or had access to that speech. But I think it gets dangerous when we start saying that things you do outside the school building are regulated inside the school building. And I wonder if student rights are being significantly impacted there. And, at you know, the other piece, too, is that, uh, you know, there seems to be some notion here. It was the the uh, the expletives that's the key issue here. Right. That there was a uh, uh, some strong F-bombs. Um, salty language is what um, uh, I think it was Nina Totenberg uh, called the, the language this morning uh, during the banter back and forth with the anchors on morning edition and salty language is a good description for someone dropping F-bombs. But, you know, I, you know, I've I've had students hurl F-bombs at me. I've had, I've seen students hurl F-bombs at administrators before. And while it may be in bad taste, whether that's a punishable offense or not, I think is a different phenomenon than that. I also wonder, too, that if the student had very strong language that didn't include expletives about, in this case, the school, the softball team, and cheerleading, um, if, if that was regulatable, if a, a student is, uh, 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 makes strong accusations about favoritism or cheating or differing standards or sexism or racism or what that whatever those accusations are, if they're not laced with expletives, is that allowed? And obviously that's why we have a Supreme Court is to help draw those lines, right? So that's maybe where we'll go with this case. I've not read any uh, accounts yet of the actual uh, debate today in the Supreme Court. I look forward to doing that. But it's obviously something that's been well amplified in the Internet age. And definitely important to follow. And I think it also points to to how we need to be Helping students understand free speech. You know, we, we have adults who uh, remain confused a- about the idea of free speech, thinking that, you know, in the United States, we have an unfettered and unlimited ability to say whatever we want without consequence and without any, you know, potential for, for regulation. And, you know, terms of service agreements and community standards uh, and, and, you know, places of business in the face-to-face world having the right to, be able to decide who to serve and companies um, having an obligation to police and moderate content. For instance, if they're going to stay on app stores, we were talking, I think last week about the expected reinstitution of parlor and um, there's just, 
you know, I have not seen, I think I've seen three of the four episodes and I'm, I mentioned before it is dark. I am not, I'm not recommending it. It's definitely not a, a, a student, you know, young person friendly, uh, series, but, but there's this, uh, you know, HBO series on, on QAnon. Um, and, and part of what has happened in the, and the phenomenon that we've all, huh, we've all seen and dealt with, with respect to, um, really horrific online speech leading to impacts like the January 6th, you know, insurrection and capital riot. It related to the rise of 4chan and 8chan and these message boards, these quote image, image boards that had a, almost no moderation at all. And so, Hey, civics is important. Civics education is important. And I will say that it's, I, it's incredibly difficult in our polarized time in many, in many circumstances to talk about current events and perhaps even to talk about, um, to, you know, to talk about these things, but we need to. And I still think that the need to look at what we're doing in civics classes, the kinds, the, the ways in which uh, digital rights and the digital world overlays with the, the face-to-face world and the kinds of things that we want all citizens to know and understand. Yep. This points to it. And, and, and some school officials may not be excited about the idea of empowering students to, to know about their rights and to be able to exercise them. But hey, I think that is part of what sets our country apart from, let's say, Saudi Arabia or China or some other countries that right. we have in mind. Well, and I've seen there were there were there, there's been a lot of 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 uh, cases that re- regarding this over the last really 22, 23 years. And I wasn't directly involved. It was a school that I taught at months after this happened. But I taught briefly in my hometown, uh, Great Falls, Montana, and there was a big case in 2002 where a senior at Great Falls High um uh, created a GeoCity site, so that gives you a sense of how long ago we're talking about here, uh, called the 10 Hottest Freshmen uh, website and took pictures of students at school. But the reason why it was uh, an issue is because the student utilized, uh, was a member, I believe, of the, uh, in, don't quote me on this one, uh, as I say this on a podcast, but I believe that the student uh, worked for either the yearbook or the newspaper and had access to passes to get kids out of, of class and as it turns out, he used those passes to pull the, the students out of class to take pictures of them, which is where the, the administration decided that it was their responsibility to, um, uh, uh, to, to intervene. And the student was ultimately expelled and was forced to, uh, go across town to finish his senior year of high school. And the reason why I mentioned that is because this has definitely been a, um, uh, definitely been a, a uh, very significant issue uh, since the creation of the internet, right? Like, and we've talked about this you know, numerous times in, in our notion of a tech correction, but giving power to everyone with relatively little barriers can be an extremely empowering uh, a concept, but, you know, it, just because people have power doesn't mean they're going to use it justly or appropriately or in the way we wish them to. And so these are all questions we have to come up with some uh, notion about uh, as we, we uh, 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 play, play these, these issues out, especially in places like the Supreme Court. Okay. Uh, let me pick up one more since we have one remaining article in that category. Uh, then this was the Washington Post back from July of 2019. Uh, it's called, I found your data. It's for sale. I'll preface this by saying this week, 
I actually subscribe to the Washington Post. They do have a nice educator subscription plan. They do. Uh, so I'm paying for that. I was paying for the New York Times, and then I learned that our school has a blanket subscription that, that covers us completely. But I've really enjoyed that over the past you know couple years. And the Washington Post has some excellent coverage, and I will admit that I have been very frustrated by their paywall at different times. And one article that we have in the show notes, actually, and I don't know if Peggy George, I don't think she's online with us uh, at this point, but she had asked uh, if we would discuss it. I found it. This was a related article to that article, but this is a couple of years old. It's talking about web browser extensions. It's talking about all the data leaking that those extensions do. And I think as we talk about Apple and some of the changes in the new version of iOS and privacy and yada, yada. Hey, and she is there. Hello, Peggy. Oh, yes. The, our president was talking tonight. <laughs> so glad, glad to. Yeah, perhaps we should have delayed for that. Um <laughs> <laughs> no, we're charging ahead. Um, anyway, the that's a couple years old. But the point of the article was that, it, you know, be careful when you're installing extensions and the level of tracking that has been done and can be done by companies many times, especially, you know, and it's not just in Chrome books, but many of us are using Chrome. It's a very popular browser, Firefox. There's extensions that are available. And there's a number of companies that are using and harvesting the data from us to, you know, sell them to all these, all these different companies that would prefer. It's like he who will not be named, the companies that would prefer not to be named and remain in the shadows who are the data brokers that, you know, have large, large businesses, but now those are under threat. So just a, a kind of, even though it's an older article, a reminder about how important it is to watch our extensions and only use ones that I would say have been reputably, um, you know, have been advocated for and recommended by sources that you trust and that have also been vetted on a privacy basis. It will be interesting to see if more organizations will step forward to vet on that kind of basis, because it's almost like I would like to have a consumer protection. Hey, this has been vetted by, you know, consumer reports or the EFF or whoever is some kind of a guarantee that my data is not being, you know, used surreptitiously. So thoughts. Um, yeah, I actually went to the website uh, that was cited there about uh, it's called did I keep it up. I might not have, um, but that was selling some of that data. And I was willing to just right now put down 50 bucks to see if uh, uh, if it had my data on it, because that's the kind of stuff I like to do on those sorts of pieces. It did say that that one of the things that that it takes advantage of is nefarious plugins um, which is a really still a, a massive issue. And while we'll probably talk a little more later about Apple's decision to drop uh, iOS 14.5 and your ability to opt out of things, what I would say is that I think people are just getting tired of being tracked and people are getting tired of stuff like this happening. And I, you know, I, I would go back if I could go back to 1995 and, you know, stand on, on a huge rock and say, you know, people of Earth, we need to find a way to pay for the Internet that's not through your privacy, right? Like, there's got to be a way we could set this up. Uh, I would have argued for, for micropayments, right, that a way to, to, to be able to pay for content without, you know, subscribing um, and providing methods to, to, to fund innovation. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but uh, that's what I would have suggested at, at that point in time. But people are tired of this stuff, and it's vaguely terrifying, right? Like, uh, uh, even if you are a squeaky clean individual that would have no problem with your data being seen, you can misconstrue even very, very, very non-judgmental things 
into some pretty extraordinarily judgmental things. And, you know, we, there's a reason why the Supreme Court has said that things like your library record is protected because that's, it goes an awful long way to say that people should have access to what you're putting into your brain. And that's effectively what the internet is in 2021. Absolutely. Privacy, as uh, as Tim Cook will argue, is a foundational right for all other rights. And we have talked on the show ad, ad nauseum on different episodes. It's been a while, but about surveillance capitalism and Shoshana Zuboff's book that she spent seven years writing and how surveillance capitalism undergirds large portions of the modern Internet economy. And we need transparency for this to be able to make good decisions about what we want to do individually and what we want to share or not share, but also so we can come to terms. And this is the social dilemma with probably what are unintended consequences, which some people are going to argue, you know, is an absolute threat to representative democracy and, you know, the rights that we enjoy as citizens in, in, in relatively free societies where our rights are protected, you know, versus having authoritarian governments and, you know, companies and whoever is going to pay being able to weaponize these platforms and, and subvert educational processes. And that has happened and continues to happen. And I think we are on a good tech correction. Hence the title of, of this, uh, you know, section of, of the podcast articles. We're, we're in, we're going in the correct direction. And in, in part that is due to actions like those of, of Apple recently. So that, that could be a segue there. Or would you like to go somewhere else tonight, Dr. Neifer? Well, yeah, let's go ahead and go to the Apple stuff because I think, uh, I, it, it, interesting to hear your thoughts on some pieces. So, um, uh, a number of people uh, have reported that iOS 14.5 has dropped, and I have installed it on both of my iOS devices. It's now the operating system on my iPhone and iPad. And I guess I did not anticipate myself doing this, and I went ahead, and there is a literally a setting now you can go into in the settings, um, and all you need to do is click on a couple of, 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 of settings and it just stops tracking altogether. It's not as universal as it sounds because there are still a number of apps in the app store that have not updated, uh, uh, after Apple made, uh, apps, uh, uh, update to be able to talk about what they're doing for, for their, their, uh, uh privacy restrictions, but it's enough. And, um, I will say that I don't notice anything different. I mean, it's been a day, so it's, it's not like it's a huge deal. Um, but I, I guess value my privacy enough that that was something I decided to do. And, and I've seen a number of articles today saying that two thirds of iPhone users plan on turning the tracking off completely. So I guess I'd start with the question, Dr. Fryer, you are an Apple household. You're not just an Apple user. Your whole house uses Apple stuff. Although I should say that my smaller household, me and my wife are both will be uh, turning off the, the tracking. Is this an option you will take as well? Yeah, I'm going to turn it off. I mean, these company companies made money and marketers made money before we had this incredibly invasive level of tracking and data reporting. My issue, and I'd be interested who's had success with this is, um, so once you update, you go into settings, there's a new, uh, you go to privacy and there's, there's right below location services, there's a new menu that says tracking and then that's it. Allow apps to request to track. Well, the screenshots on some of the articles that we, we have, it, you know, show little, 
they show apps that will appear below here and then you can on and off those apps. I haven't had that happen. I even deleted Facebook uh, from my, this phone and then reinstalled it. And I've never gotten a prompt to say, hey, can we track you? You know, which I was expecting to do. So I don't know. I'm not. I'm not convinced yet that I've really made any difference. However, one of the things that I wanted to point out, and this is in, um, let's see, I think this was on the, um, well, here's Peggy's article. So Peggy, thank you, Peggy, which by the way, I mentioned before you, I think you joined, I subscribed to the Washington Post this week. So uh, give you credit for encouraging that because I've, I've been on the edge of doing that already. Um, the article she wanted to, uh, us to talk about a little bit was, or is, uh, Facebook, now has to ask permission to track your phone. Here's how to stop it. And that's an April 26th article. Um, uh, let's see. I was trying to think. Well, maybe that was the one. Anyway, I follow, I follow these steps and I just, it also, it, I think that, that Washington Post article leads to a link that talks also about third party tracking. And you have to do this on the web. You can't do this in the app or it's a little like harder or more difficult to do on the phone. But it lets you wipe out, supposedly, and I think this can take 24 to 36 hours or something, third-party tracking data that has been tracked in the past. But then you've got to dig even deeper in order to you know, say no to future third-party tracking. But this is like you go into Walgreens or CVS and you buy some kind of medication, you know, and then they're going to be letting Facebook know about it and, and they find out. This, by the way, some people will say, because I've, I've read plenty of places where, no, your phone's not listening to you. And, and I've heard people tell stories and I've had experiences too, where I'm like, no, it, it is <laughs> because it's just been too freaking creepy in terms of something that has been said. And then you open up Instagram or Facebook and there's the ad for it. But anyway, some of this is um, supposed to be because of third-party tracking. So I'm glad those tools are available. These things are being highlighted. Two-thirds is a large percentage of people, and I think that probably makes you know Facebook really upset. But look, folks, if your business model depends on hiding what you're doing from people, and when people learn about what you're doing, they want to say no to you, that is called unethical. And I am so glad that we're being given these tools to say no. But like I said, I'm not convinced yet that I have because I'm, I had originally, uh, you know, checked that box, allow apps to request to track and said no. And anyway, I never, I have not gotten a prompt even when I reinstall. So I'd be curious what other people's experiences have been and, and are with this because I definitely want to opt out and I opted out of the third party tracking as well. And I will say too that, um, I, you know, and there's been a lot of pushback to this, uh, Facebook, um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO and founder of Facebook has said some pretty terse things, uh, about, uh, Apple and directed some, some comments towards, uh, their CEO. What I would say is that I, I know the, the, the thing that, that Mr. Zuckerberg said was that, you know, Apple's just going after us because this is how we make our money. And it's like, well, yeah, that's why they're going after you. It's because you're making your money on the back of privacy. And there has to be a middle ground somewhere between um, 
uh, a Facebook and uh, Facebook being able to be a viable platform where they have enough money to continue the platform and not being creepy, right? There's There has to be a, a middle ground there. And I, I keep getting reminded that you don't see these as often anymore, but, you know, fake things that, that, that are viral on Facebook are, you know, a dime a dozen. But the ones that used to get a lot of traction were that Facebook was testing out charging a dollar a month. Right. And if they charge a dollar a month with their current number of users, you know, they would be a, you know, $15 billion a year company. Right. They have uh, over well over a billion active users a month. I think it's actually way more than that now, but it would be a, a healthy chunk of change for them to make that amount of money um, in any given month. But the bottom line is that um, I would be more comfortable with paying a dollar a month for Facebook and would pay a dollar a month for Facebook. I'm not sure if I would pay that much more than a dollar a month, but I'd happily pay a dollar a month for Facebook if they stopped tracking me and stopped uh, targeting me with ads. And then also promise that they would not, um, you know, try to keep people on the app longer by feeding them disinformation, right? That's a harder one to pull off. But, you know, that's that's the debate we're talking about. And people are like, I've never paid a dollar for Facebook. Well, the, you're already you're paying well more than a dollar a month for Facebook um, with your your targeted advertising. And I, I get it. Like, no one wants to hear this because, you know, we want our cake and eat it, too. But the the only answer to this is at some point we have to find a financial model for most of the Internet that allows for big enough payments to make it worth it for the app and small enough payments. People will pay for it. And, and it's especially going to be really ugh for schools, right? Because schools uh, and, and, and a lot of their online content and use of the Internet is built upon the free Internet, right? That's why the Internet was supposed to be so democratizing. But um, there's, there's got to be a way to do this. I don't know what it is yet, but, um, yeah, I, the, Apple's going after you, Facebook, because how you make your money. Yeah, and and it's and I don't think it's just because as a company they want to win over Facebook. I no. I don't know. This is also my own aspiration, but I I really do want to believe in Apple's values here, and I I do be, I, I do believe this. I Apple has some strong corporate values. Um, I've I've been you know tied in with the company for quite a while, and uh, you know as a as an Apple distinguished educator from two thousand five, yada yada yada, and um. You know, there's there's things about Apple that I have not liked and, you know, some of the lock in and, you know, I'm not a fan of Apple News. I mean, I really, you know, really chafe under some of the things where it's like, oh, but you all, you know, this is what you can only do on an iOS platform, especially when it when it comes to content, you know, even iTunes U. I mean, I I think that there's there's a big need that we have. And I'm speaking as an educator you know, passionate about public education, private education in all forms to have accessibility and to address the digital divide and, and, you know, strive for equity, et cetera. But when it comes to, to this particular issue and maybe and we're, and you have a number of Google articles in here that we're going to, we're going to talk about as well. You know, Apple is really on a different page than Facebook certainly and, and even Google in terms of their business model and where they are, are, are standing. And so I just, I'm very, well, I think many times we have, and I have too, sort of rug my hands and said, I'm, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I think Apple is helping provide part of that answer. And it is through the provision of more information and more tools 
in the hands of consumers to make the choice that they want to make. So yes, we will be tracking this and seeing, you know, what pundits are estimating are the percentage of folks who are opting out. And, and I do not expect Facebook to go out of business. This is not going to shut them down. This is not going to end all marketing and this isn't going to end target at targeted advertising either. We talked a little bit, I think last week, last couple of weeks about flock, this new sort of aggregated group model that Google or sorry. Yeah. Google is doing with Chrome uh, and, and, and for AdSense and things like that. So things are shifting. Things are changing. They always do. We're not going to be doing away with marketing, but we certainly need to get a handle on this. And the, the you know, we seem to be moving in, in the right direction. And this, by the way, is not caused by government regulation. You know, this is caused by a huge company that, that has a lot of power because of how many of these devices are in people's hands. And, yeah. um, you know, they're, they're taking steps, I think, that, that align both with their profit incentive and, and their bottom line, but also with, in, in terms of people's perception of them and being able to curry favor. But it, it, I do think it's also their values. So. Yep. Absolutely. Well, two other quick Apple hits. Uh, this article is interesting. It might be worth your time if you're, you want to know more about Apple versus Epic, which is the App Store issue. But Apple is starting, um, to really fortify its argument that the point of the app store is to protect its users. The point of it is not to, um, uh, uh, not to, um, uh, ba, 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 not to be a, a marketplace for, for, for app creators. It's there to protect its, its users. And, and I'm reminded of something that goes way back to the start of the iPhone. Um, you know, when the iPhone was first released, there was no app store. And in fact, Steve Jobs said at the, op- at the opening pitch for the iPhone that you don't want third party apps on your phone, right? You want the internet. You want the phone. You want we, Mother Apple provides you, but you don't want, you don't want an app store. And I would agree uh, th- with the criticism then to say that it really diminishes the power of the platform if you can't freely install apps. But I do think that the app store has been a generally good middle ground for users and companies to get access to Apple users. And this notion, I, I don't know if the, the, the 30% Cost share is too high or too low, or if that stifles competition, I don't have an opinion formulated to that, but I do think users need protecting. And one of the things that I will tell you is that there's not a week that doesn't go by that another 25 or 30 apps over in the Play Store on the Google side aren't caught you know, stealing your data or, or mining Bitcoin on your phone or something stupid or, or insane. And you can download, you know, really, really uh, nefarious app stores and just install them on Google. And I'm not saying that, that for a lot of folks, that's, that's an okay thing. For example, it's a wonderful, uh, open source app store that I usually would install on a, on a Google device that I thought was pretty effective in, in delivering great open source software that's generally considered to be more safe than commercial software because there's open source code available, uh, open source code available. But the bottom line is, is that Apple is fortifying here. Yeah. And, and then one other thing that I would also note, um, I pulled the trigger and bought some Apple tracker thingies um, just because I saw a demo online. Air, air tags? Air tags. I'm going to call them tracker thingies because that's kind of how I'm feeling about them right now because they got me right, like hook, one, singer. It was the, it was the demo that I rewatched. And the notion of it does – right now I, I'm a Tile user. In fact, I pay for Tile Pro because of, of how good the Tile service has been. 
but the fact that you can, uh, you can't do this on tile right now. You, you like, it will like show you hot spots of where it's located at and you can like guide your phone around. It's not just playing, uh, it's not just playing a sound for you. It actually will show you where it's at. I bought four of them. I'll use two of them myself and give them two of them to my wife. If assuming she's not creeped out by it, but, uh, and they have a significant number of security, uh, 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 pr- procedures built in. So you can't use them to track other people. For example, you can't throw in the back of someone's car. Like if you want to, uh, track something that you're not near, it, it requires authentication to do that. So hmm, interesting stuff, but, uh, immediately the folks at tile, um, uh, freaked out about this. I think they knew it was coming. They had a press release, uh, moments after the Apple, uh, event ended last week and they will be, uh, asking antitrust regulators to look into Apple getting into this business. So we'll see. And I'm sure that I will have a full review of this, uh, product next week. So. And, you know, we've seen this movie before with a lot of different features that a third party developer creates and it's an app and it's great. You know, and then Google or Apple decide, yeah, that is great. We're going to make that a core part of the experience. I think we're about to see that. Well, I don't think we are about to see that with Google and Chrome with screencasting, right? And a company like Screencastify is probably going to be in trouble. I mean, they're going to have, they're going to be challenged to further differentiate themselves from the default built in features of that. Uh, but you know, how many people are going to pay for that when it is built in? But I kind of think. This is just sort of the nature of operating systems and computing platforms. I don't know, maybe not. It'll be interesting. There, there certainly is, I think, a greater appetite on the part of Congress and especially, you know, Democrats in Congress to file some antitrust legislation and to push back against big tech. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yep, absolutely so. Okay, where to next, sir? Oh, let's see. Why don't we slip down to the miscellaneous category? Let's do uh, so. Yeah, this uh, article is from the Herald Sun on April 27th. And I will admit to you, I don't even really know where the Herald Sun is. So what the heck am I doing as a digital literacy teacher? Not on, uh, not checking that out. So today, actually, I was talking about lateral reading with my kids. So let's do it right now. Wikipedia, Herald Sun. It is based in Melbourne, Australia. So when yeah, when you... Vertical reading would be, you know, staying on that website. Lateral is going to the side and simply adding Wikipedia to the name of the source. Uh, a great thing. So this is a, a Melbourne, Australia newspaper. And the headline here is, after years as a mean disaster girl takes control of her image with a hefty payoff. And you probably will recognize this image. It is the image of a residential fire and this grinning young child who I guess a lot of people just assumed, you know, had had set fire to the house and it tells the story that of course she did not do that. Um, and you know, her and her father had taken the picture, but it's, it's the sale of this artifact digitally wrapped in as an NFT uh, wrapped into, um, you know, the, um, the, uh, what am I trying to say with, with cryptocurrency, the blockchain. Uh, so the NFT is a non fungible token. We've talked about these a little bit on the show. Uh, this NFT eventually sold almost for half a million dollars, $430,000. But actually it's an encouraging story because here, you know, she had no control at all over this meme and the way that it's been used and, and the spread of this thing. Um, and now she, you know, is a half millionaire as a result of the sale of this, I still can't get my mind around 
this. So, Jason, can you, can you can you clarify the NFT well, for us all? Well, there, there's one clarification I have to make. I'm sorry to do this, Wes. Um, this is actually the Durham, North Carolina. Um, is it? Uh, yeah, Harold's son, yes. Oh, so, thank you so, so much. Yeah. See, we, we got a faster uh, – I was having to try to talk and Google at the same time. Doctor. See, I, yeah, I was, I was clicking back. the bottom. Thank so, you. Thank yeah, you. but I would also note, too, like, this is the kind of conversations that should be going on in your classroom, right? Like, I I, I, I always – especially as a, as a debate teacher myself when I was in, in, in the debate classroom that – especially when we were talking about sources, like, just, you know, do – these are group activities. They really are uh, as part of this process. But I don't get this from here's, – well, here's my disconnect. I like the idea of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, because I do think that there is a whole world of digital art that just isn't getting compensated appropriately right now. And having some 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 friends, uh, uh, some of which are former students that are in the art world that are mostly digital artists and – 100% chance she's not listening, but shout out to Chelsea Carlson, one of the most, maybe the most creative person I've, I've, I've ever had the opportunity to work with, former student. Um, and, um, there, 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 there's something here, right? And the, there, there's definitely something here, and you know that because the NBA and Major League Soccer and the WNBA and the NFL, they're all getting involved in this. But here's the disconnect for me, right? So Disaster Girl, which uh, I read this article. It's a great article. Um, I think it's good that Disaster Girl had an opportunity to get uh, some um, control back of this because her image spread. Uh, the article's really good because it talks about a little bit about her history and how she, she became a meme, still very actively uh, spread around the Internet. Um, but she decided to sell, you know, this image as a, as an NFT and made a half million dollars on it. And there's a, a, an organization that's been collecting a ton of these meme NFTs as part of their archive of, of owned pieces. Um, overly attached girlfriend, that meme, her name's Lania. She also did this as well. Uh, Bad News Brian. Uh, the fact that I know the name of a lot of these memes is probably something worth judgment. But, you know, the bottom line is, is that a lot of people profited off of this. They probably deserve to profit off of this. But here's the disconnect. I still don't understand yet how you how you're really protected in ownership of this image, because what would need to happen then based on ownership rules of media is that you'd have to take a legal action against someone to reclaim that image when it's used inappropriately, right? Because copyright is against the law, but there's no criminal penalties there. Copyright is enforced via civil penalties, right? That's, that's, that's how copyright law is enforced in the United States. It is against the law to do it, but that doesn't happen in criminal court. That happens in, in civil court. And so I think that Disaster Girl would then need to sue someone that posts the meme um, and, uh, and and to, to reclaim her rights or to profit off of that, right? Or, or ask for profit based on, uh, on on any funds that were, were were acquired through utilizing that image. And my understanding is that you've always had that right, right? She's always owned that, for at least her, I think her father's always owned that photograph. He was the photographer. It's a photo that ended up in a, a photo contest. And he's always owned that photo. So he could have sued anyone that was spreading it in this way. So I don't know yet how NFTs protect the, the, the artist. That's where I'd like to hear more from artists that are doing this because I'd like to hear your plans about how you're going to protect your intellectual property. I think that's an important part of this, but that's the missing piece for me right now. 
Very good. Uh, and shoot, let's just go ahead and finish off the, uh, the category with another lovely article that is not a, a mainstream. And then we're going to get to some mainstream core Google stuff, I know, because Jason will always take us back. Uh, this is from The Verge uh, a couple days ago, two days ago on April 26th. Inventive grandson builds telegram messaging machine for 96-year-old grandmother. So this is delightful. Uh, this guy's actually the, I guess, is he co-creator? of um of telegram which is a secure messaging platform and so it's called the yaya gram yaya being a term of endearment in castilian for grandmother a warm way to refer to your grandmother and so it is just super cool you've just got this uh literal like headphone jack with with two male jacks and the names of the grandchildren they you want to communicate with. And so like a switchboard operator in the old days, you just connect to the grandchild that you want to talk to. There's a microphone. You hold down the button. You speak the message that you want to send to them. And then at the other end, they have the same system. And it's going to print out sort of like a receipt label uh, of your message to them. And she's going to receive it the same way. And it all exchanges via encrypted message through Telegram. That my friends, is a really, really cool DIY project. So don't let it ever be said that we're just here to get you down, talking about the tech correction and the doom and gloom. You have also heard tonight about the Yaya Graham, and I'm sure somebody out there is going to build one for themselves. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm so touched by this that I can't even begin to start. And what I love about it too was that he went, it's not quite cyberpunk because this is like mid-80s look, but it. It is a very it's it, it's it's a very 1980s looking device. It is legit. It is yeah. really super cool. And hey, what a, if I guess he's put the plans out there? What a cool like makerspace project. You yeah. know, I'm I'm gonna give it to our makerspace teacher. And like if we could have one of these, it would. I don't know, man, because it's built on a Raspberry Pi, along with some other you know pretty inexpensive tech it, that, that's DIY. But yeah, the whole the actual box itself and and just the whole thing it, it looks super super cool and i love it in the way that it is a connection and throwback to the old days of the switchboard i'll, I'll just tell a quick story and then i think we'll have to get to some google articles but you know when i worked for at&t for two years that's why we moved to oklahoma in 2006 i worked for 2006 to 2008 hey guess what in 2007 i heard a guy named steve jobs on stage at macworld talk about this thing called an iphone um you know, I had an opportunity to go into several different uh, communities into the, the, this, the, the, what was the switchboard, you know, the, the whole building that used to be people and then became digitized. And now it's just this really, really small area in a larger building, you know, and we have in downtown Oklahoma City, a, a museum, you know, for, the switchboard operators and, and where we came with telecommunications. So this is really cool that it's using an excellent encrypted platform telegram to send these messages. But yet it's a throwback to the old days when we actually had human beings taking analog plugs and switching them back and forth. So yeah, pretty cool. Super, super awesome. All right, take us to Google Land, sir, or wherever else you would like to take us for the last uh, 20 minutes here. Sure. Well, Google I.O. is coming up in May, and uh, Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, uh, has key significant product updates. And so a lot of people are starting to suppose what that might look like. Um, and it's everything from um, uh, uh, 
native installation of, of Stadia, which is Google's streaming gaming platform on Chromebooks, which uh, apparently is something that people uh, are desiring significantly. Uh, potentially a new Pixel uh, 6 phone, which would be uh, a, a nice piece of, of, of new hardware. I'm sure the Google phones are vastly superior uh, in my mind to alternatives uh, in the Android universe. Uh, there's also rumors that Google will also be releasing its own silicon, uh, silicone. Uh, 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 so in other words, they're going to start making their own chips, which I think puts them uh, in pretty decent competition with uh, their friends at Apple. But one of the things I wanted to mention is that we'll certainly be keeping an eye on this. And my guess is, is that education will not be lost um, uh, at this conference, that Google's made significant gains in the last year. I mean, everyone's up, right? Everyone is serving more because of the pandemic. But the bottom line is, is that more people adopted Chromebooks in the last 18 months than did any other platform, even though MacBooks also increased its market share during this time as well. So, you know, stay tuned for that. Now some very specifics. Uh, first, Chrome OS 90 has been released, the 90th release of the Chrome operating system. And um, I have installed it on my... Um uh, on one of my home Chromebooks, uh, uh, in fact, I was, I had the beta version, I installed the final version. I'm actually gonna leave my town for the first time since, uh, February, I'm sorry, March, uh, 4th. I'm gonna see my parents this weekend, which is very exciting. I'll be taking a, a car trip. I'd be lying if I didn't say that just packing has been a little anxiety inducing, cause I haven't done it in so long. And they're gonna um, see your hair, Jason. Do you think they your are mom, gonna see my hair? Will she meet you with scissors? That's what uh, I wanna know. Well, it's either scissors or they're just gonna, like, take a, a huge mouth it hit me over the head and then shave my head because my parents have already explained that they're not a fan of my new hair. Um, but so, you know, my, my trusty uh, uh, HP Chromebook 13 G1, um, uh, uh, by far my, my favorite Chromebook ever because I bought it uh, used for $100 on eBay because it was slightly bent and it's been my trusty pal ever since. But this has Chrome 90 on it. And uh, the only thing that's really exciting about Chrome 90 that I think is worth uh, your time, if this is useful to you uh, to experiment with, is that there is now um, a native scanning app. And one of the things that Chrome has been really working on that I think has been really awesome, the Chrome OS team has spent quite a bit of time uh, trying to, to make this a, a viable full-time computer for power users, right? And I've already proven you can do that, right? I'm a power user. I used it for a long time as my primary platform. I probably still will still do so at work uh, for a desktop platform, but um, you can now plug in a scanner, or if it's got a web-based interface, or I should say a network-based interface, you can scan to network, and you can now scan directly to PDF, um, or I think they have an OCR thing built in that as well. That's super cool. There's also one other thing that's probably more for power users. There's now a diagnostic app on Chrome OS, which you can uh, see statistics about the memory and the battery and the CPU usage. And before you could download third-party apps uh, to do that. But, you know, as we explained earlier tonight, maybe that's not a super great idea to do in Chrome. That may be a, a, a uh, something you might want to give up on and building more things into the native uh, a Chrome operating system, I think, is super great. But Chrome Unboxed has a great walkthrough video. There's still, I in my mind, if you read uh, Chrome Unboxed and about Chromebooks from Kevin Tofel, 
you're going to get 99% of the great information. It's not as well covered on a lot of technology uh, websites and blogs as I think as it should be. But if you really want to get deep in Chrome world, those are two excellent news sources uh, to be able to do that. Um, so, Wes, I, I guess I, I have to ask the question, now that you can scan natively in Chrome OS, is it time to give up your love of Mac OS and move to Chrome OS? Well, hey, let's be clear. I love Chrome. I have a Chromebook yeah. in my room. All my fifth graders have Chromebooks. Our entire school is go, middle school is going Chrome uh, OS with with a new I think Dell eleven you know Chromebook. So I'm I'm really looking forward to having a new uh, Chromebook. Um, a, as you mentioned, your different devices. I don't I don't know. Was it the USI Silas? Is that the, mm -hmm. the yes? That's one correct. You yep. talked about. I don't know if these Dells are going to be compatible with the USI uh, Stylus or not, but. You know, I'm, I'm really glad to see Google innovating. Um, I echo what you're saying about, you know, upcoming announcements. They're not going to forget education. We talked about on the show Google's fantastic education event that they had in February and that, that archive is still available. You can go take a look at it. So many different things that, that Google did to rise to the occasion during the pandemic. And what other company could rise to what Google has done for free? You know, it's just incredible. Um, so these, it's always an, an exciting time. Um, and I look forward to the IO event, but, and, and then also a throwback to the article, Jason, you had shared two weeks ago. And I mentioned it again last week where it was like Chrome's or Chrome's, uh, Moore's law is not over, but it talks about chips and how it's not just about, you know, the, the processor speed and, and the kinds of metrics that we used to be comparing, but added on to that. It, and I'm not going to fully capture everything, but this idea of, of making your own silicon and the speed value of that, it's not just going to be something that Apple's doing. It's happening in other industries. And so, yes, I'm, I would be confident that we're going to see Google follow suit. And, you know, this is just continuing to push that curve of speed and performance to the point where I think tonight, Jason, would you say you have adequate speed in the in-processor Mac at your fingertips today, or, or do you find yourself wanting power? Well, I, the, the Mac, <laughs> Mac OS is great, right? I mean, and the M1 chip is something really special. And the, the thing that is, um, I, 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 I suspected this, but now that I have access to the device, it's just not slow in any way, shape, or form, right? Like, it's not, there's just no, there's no point I'm thinking to myself, man, I wish this was faster. And there are times, and, and I have a, a access to a great Windows desktop at home. It's gaming machine. It's a little old now. It's five years old. Um, but I bought it with really great stats in, in 2015, and, uh, you know, it's still a, a champ. And, and, and honestly, you don't need a lot of good guts to run Chrome uh, operating system to where it feels fast and snappy. But, you know, this is a, a, a it's a laptop, and, I, and I'm not even using a, a desktop. I'm, I'm just plugging the laptop into a, a literally a used docking station I bought off of eBay, and I'm using it as a desktop computer. Usually that's not a super great... Um, a, a super great uh, a strategy, and the bottom line is is that uh, I don't I don't want for speed uh, on the Mac OS. That said, like I like Chrome OS, I like how simple it is. I also like that I spend most of my time in Google Docs, anyways. And for the record, I wrote most of my doctoral dissertation on a Chromebook, and it worked out just fine for me. So we'll see. I you know I 
I don't know what's going to happen to Google, right? They also stand to lose the, I, I heard a statistic uh, earlier today, billions of dollars with Apple's decision to allow people just to shut tracking right off. I think Google's a smart company and I think there are smart people to work there and the folks that work there will figure out a way, um, you know, to do that. And in fact, I would like to also note for the record that, uh, Google or Google Bank or, uh, blah, 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 blah. the Verge noted yesterday that in their, uh, uh quarterly, earnings call that they made a lot of money um, in the last year. This is one of the reasons why I think it's a little um, strange that they are now charging um, uh, uh, for a lot of services they previously gave away for free. But I think Google sees that in the future, they're going to need to charge. There'll still be free tiers for everything, but for power users, they're going to need to charge some money. And and I, I pay for extra Google services. I have two small business accounts that I pay monthly for. I have personal extra storage I pay monthly for. Um, and I, I think my total bill every month to Google is under $20. It's it's worth that for me. There's stuff that's worth paying for. And look yes. how much we pay on the entertainment front, right? For years to cable companies, you know, and now we're having the, the different streaming services and, and music services and things like that add up. But yes, there are things that are worth paying for. And, you know, there's there's positives and negatives, but overall... I think the, the positives of the Google ecosphere, and even when we're paying for those, both as enterprise and as consumers, it's it's a it's fantastic. So very very pleased to be a part of that ecosystem, and look forward to not only Google I/O, but you know I'm going to be even more deep into the Chrome environment as our whole school is yes. next year. So, and then I want to shout out one other article because it kind of does speak to the nerd in me. Uh, Chrome unboxed uh, 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 released an article for, on April 26th that talks about, they tested the new Asus Chrome flip C 536, which don't say 10 times that 10 times fast, but uh, this is a new uh, Chromebook offering that has an 11th generation a core i3 processor and i3 processors are not known for their speediness and yet they ran benchmarks on this and it was absolutely dominant over 10th generation core i7 processors and so I do think that there is going to be a cheap computer renaissance uh, in, in the next year or two that, that it's not that there aren't cheap computers right now. It's just that the vast majority of them are terrible and you can buy a, a, a PC at your local discount store that will cost you $299 with impressive specs, but it's got slow chips and slow Ram and low amounts of Ram. And it's just not a good experience. But um, if the next generation of Intel chips, plus what's happening in ARM processors right now and Ryzen chips, uh, if if that's going to create uh, opportunities to sell premium $300 Chromebooks, uh, uh, the cheapest offering at Apple is a $599 um, dollar, uh, Mac Mini that by all accounts is a speed demon in its implementation. And if Ryzen uh, can, can and allow Windows users to buy a great Windows laptop for $499, that's really excellent news, I think, for uh, consumers. More importantly, I think it's excellent news for schools. So you can buy... Uh, 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 budget-friendly devices without breaking the bank and then not sacrifice your user experience because of it. Two quick comments. One, um, uh, the uh, the speed. I, I think I heard this uh, on This Week in Tech, which I'm not listening to constantly, or maybe it was um, clockwise, but I think they, they were talking about how 
with the speed of these devices in, in Apple, this may be what Apple's waiting, among other things, waiting for in terms of AR and VR. There's so much capability to these devices beyond the current software and, and the quote unquote regular use of them. So that's going to be interesting to see uh, how, how that develops. And my other thought is, hey, let's remember the netbook. Do you remember the netbook? When I became a tech director in 2015, you know, we had about 20 or 30 of these cheap old things that had been purchased in our library and they were small and kind of cute, but they were horribly slow and they just weren't that great. Uh, they kind of sucked. And, you know, no one cried when we gave them away. Uh, and so today the idea of being able to get a relatively inexpensive device that can be you know, not only faster today, but have a greater return on investment. I will say that, you know, nothing in my experience has beat a Mac for that return on investment and how long we can use the hardware. So you do need to calculate a return on investment. And there's, it's more than just how cheaply the, you know, company can deliver the device to your loading dock. But remembering the netbook, knowing how, you know, schools are, are very excited about the price points of Chromebooks. I think all of this bodes well for, not only, you know, today and, and consumer, but also in the future, because schools, we hang on to things for a long, long time. And in many cases, we're, we're reticent to, to give them up. So important to keep the security updates going, important to, you know, have a plan for when we're going to refresh things, but good to see these trends continuing. Because we've certainly read articles before about the end of Moore's Law, and it's all going to be over, and no, not yet. Yep, Absolutely. Um, and then, um, when, actually, let's save the rest of the Google articles for next week. I do want to do a couple quick connectivity articles. Uh, first, in a bit of breaking news, the Great Falls Tribune, which may not be on your reading list, but that's my hometown paper. The Great Falls Tribune reported um, uh, uh, last week that Montana officially has the slowest Internet of any state in the union. So, and that includes Alaska, right? Which, uh, 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 struggles a bit, uh, with, uh, internet connectivity. And it's obviously not me. I have 400 down and 20 up. I am just fine in relatively urban Western Montana, but it just a note that I hope if the infrastructure plan passes, uh, that, 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 uh, President Biden has, has proposed that there is a concerted effort to make sure that real connectivity gains happen in very rural areas because it has not happened despite 20 years of efforts. And that includes having a number of very powerful members of Congress from the state of Montana, uh, aggressively lobbying, uh, for that. Uh, we had a senator named Senator Burns who actually has a building named after him at, uh, Montana State University, the Burns Communication or Telecommunication Center that did a lot of work in the 90s and early 2000s to put money into telecom to bring the internet to Montana. Investment here has not kept pace and we need that super badly. And then, um, uh, uh, uh just a kind of a, a bit of a follow up article to that. The Verge reported yesterday that Elon Musk's SpaceX has received approval to, to lower orbit satellites, which will provide better service to Starlink. And Starlink already is pretty solid. I, I see a lot of people refer to mixed responses to Starlink, but I've read very few actual critical articles. I, 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 it's not none. I've read one or two accounts where it hasn't worked super great, but everyone I know that's using it is super happy with it. And uh, that will only get better as they put more satellites in the air. 
Absolutely. Well, is it that time? I think it is. I think we're at the top of the hour. Sir, your geek of the week. Okay. Well, this is going to be an interesting one for me. I learned this from my sixth graders today. I'm sure that you and Peggy are already spending countless hours playing Doge Miner 2, but it is kind of amazing to see how games that are really mindless and basically all you do is this uh, can take up so much time. And for the record, like, we do not encourage our kids to play mindless games on their devices. In fact, uh, they're really not supposed to be doing that. And, um, yeah, we're, we, we want to be using our devices for academic purposes at school. And when we're on breaks here, let's go outside and play Foursquare and do things like that. And it's great. But holy cow, right? It is a continual issue of what is the latest game and what are kids doing. And this, uh, this Doge Miner, you know, it's from a gaming standpoint, it, it, just, I mean, we do this as adults too, right? We could be doing all kinds. And I, and I do, I try to do some very edifying and positive things. I listen to great podcasts, you know, but sometimes I am probably doom scrolling uh, my Instagram, looking at other people's pictures of barbecue and, you know, my wife loves in uh, Facebook marketplace and these other things. So yes, Doge minor two, the most popular game among sixth graders at our school today. Um, go have fun. It's free. Jason. Hold on, I'm I'm mining Dogecoin. <laughs> you can go to the moon, and then you upgrade your pickaxe tool, and then I think you go to Mars, and then Jupiter's the next planet. So just keep on leveling up. I did tease it uh, last week, and we'll have to push it to next week. But I I I have invested a bit in Dogecoin, and the return on it's been pretty ridiculous so far. I don't expect that to continue, or really to get my money back out of it. But um, uh, cryptocurrency is a thing. And it's probably realer, you know, realer. Realer. It's realer, baby. Know, hey, it's there's real realer. It's realer. Cryptocurrency. Um, it's realer. Cryptocurrency is realer than we're probably giving it credit for. But my partner in crime, Mike Agostelli, and I have been keeping an eye on this uh, and think there may be something here. Just remember that one Bitcoin is worth $30,000. Um, I'm going to share something that's completely different. Um, I, In my next life, I will be a designer. I love graphic design. It's so soothing and interesting and pleasing to the eye. But um, I and I, I, I know just enough to be functional in my day job. That's really the amount of graphic design that I have. But I do like playing around with things like Photoshop filters and uh, templates and overlays and all the cool things you can do with Photoshop. And I love retro style design. And one of the places that I will frequent is there's a great uh, uh, kind of website for designers called Mighty Deals, mightydeals.com, where if you want to go buy fancy fonts or if you want to buy uh, Photoshop vectorizers is is, is uh, things you can buy there, text effects in Photoshop. Uh, I've also purchased a number of really wonderful clip art sets in there that have a kind of a retro feel to them I've used in design projects. It's really cheap. Um, it, it's not, um, you know, it, it's not going to be the super premium stuff, although occasionally they have a really incredible thing there. I've also picked up a number of wonderful, uh, presentation slide templates before that I've utilized in, in data presentations, but that's mightydeals.com. Well, Wes, where can people find you on the internet? Well, I was just on Dogemeyer too. <laughs> but you're not gonna, you're not gonna be able to connect to me there. So westfriar.com slash after, uh, actually, uh, encouraged by David Jakes. I set up a new Twitter channel last weekend for the, the, um, pulled pork or pork shoulder that I smoked. And you can find me on cooking with Wes. And that's also on Facebook, but. 
purely culinary arts there, westfriar.com slash after. You can get all the links. How about you, Dr. Neifer? I am mostly on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach, and I, I don't engage in a ton of conversations there. What I like to do is share things that I've been reading, and many of those things end up on the EdTech Situation Room. But this show here is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast where we'd like to talk about technology and kind of shoot it through the educational prism. We'd love if you join us live. You can hang out with Peggy George in the chat room. You can do that by following us on Twitter, EdTechSR, or you can go to our website, edtechsr.com, and we broadcast live over Twitter, not Twitter, YouTube and Facebook, where we have the chat room open and ready for your comments. If you don't want to join us live, that's fine. We're here, by the way, at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central Time, uh, somewhere in the middle of the night, UTC, if you happen to be in that part of the world. But if you don't want to join us live, feel free to download us wherever Fire Podcasts are aggregated, which includes everything from Stitcher to the Apple Podcast app. We wish you a great week. Stay safe, stay savvy, and we'll see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. Good night, everybody.